0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week we look at what to expect in 2021 from Brexit, including its impact on the UK's financial services sector, the political challenges ahead and if the market's strong start to the year has made investors too complacent. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, and How Ran Wee, senior investment strategist. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. I'm joined today by a couple of our resident experts. Firstly, How Ran Wee, who's our investment strategist to talk all things markets, and Olivia Gleeson, our, our government relations guru and political Expert and for obvious reasons, I think um, there's there's plenty for us to talk about. So Olivia, happy new year! to you too? And I guess before we all sort of broke up, to whatever degree we broke up before Christmas, we'd had that long period of talks to look for a trade deal, and we finally got there on Christmas Eve. But I guess it would be really interesting for for the listeners to hear a bit about. Do you think, is this the end of the story with Brexit? Or are we likely to be talking about this throughout 2021? And given that we've, you know, we're all a bit stuck at home. So is this going to be one of the things that we focus on?
1: So yes, I'm afraid you might not like my answer. Um, (laughs) But by the very nature of the deal, which is all about managing divergence, it definitely means we can expect some turbulence into 2021 that we'll all be reading about You know, for example, although there's tariff-free and quota-free trading goods uh, included in the agreement, there are still checks at the border and fresh paperwork and procedures for businesses to consider. And in the last two weeks, we've naturally seen some headaches at the border with goods being delayed. And what's a quite poignant hangover from 2020, you know, issues with fish are back. Only yesterday we're reading about the government having to work pretty fast to address the issue of perishable seafood supplies and smooth access to European markets in, in that respect. And we should also bear in mind more broadly that the UK now has the ability to diverge from EU rules. And under this agreement, this sort of divergence could actually lead to the UK losing the benefits of the trade agreement and, you know, tariffs being reimposed. And of course, this sort of divergence framework applies both ways and the power is reciprocal. So we could certainly see some flashpoints ahead on respective uh, policy divergences. And then finally, we shouldn't forget that the deal actually still needs to be formally ratified by the European Parliament. You know, there wasn't time before that 31st of December deadline, other than prov- provisional application. And MEPs have actually begun their scrutiny process this week. And we're hearing about some early speculation that the European Parliament could actually try to introduce amendments to the tax. You know, some MEPs are voicing concerns over the potential weakness of taxation and anti-money laundering provisions in the agreement. Now, it's too early to tell and, of course, any amendments would need to be agreed by the Partnership Council, but we're certainly going to watch that process very closely. Wow. So it sounds like plenty
0: plenty to keep you busy over the coming weeks and months. And, and what about financial services? Clearly an area that we have a significant interest in, but a lot of the commentators focusing on the fact that the deal doesn't cover financial services. So what, what are the implications of that? What, what do we need to be aware of? And, and what should we be looking out for next on this?
1: Yes, it's certainly an issue very close to home for us, Nikki. But yeah. you know, as expected, the agreement actually contained minimal provisions on financial services. And and the Prime Minister admitted following the deal that the scope of financial services perhaps didn't go as far as we would have liked. And instead the future relationship on I will call it FS is being dealt with via a separate process of equivalence determinations. Now this is a complex patchwork of agreements, which is pretty unstable due to the EU's underlying concerns that the UK might diverge over time. And of course, we know about the EU's desire to encourage financial services to relocate. Now, the good news is there's a commitment from both sides to further negotiation on regulatory cooperation for financial services to establish something called a memorandum of understanding. Now, this would essentially codify such cooperation. And I think a rough deadline has been set for March 2021 to get that done. Now, if we look at the crystal ball for what sort of future decisions on financial services might look like, We've actually been given quite a few clues by recent comments from uh, UK policymakers that I'll just touch on briefly. So the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey recently advocated that the UK should avoid becoming a rule taker of EU rules as a price for equivalence. And this sentiment was also echoed by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who hinted that the UK is ready to diverge on certain areas of financial regulation to help his ambition to reinforce London, for example, as a world leading financial centre now i've mentioned previously there will be flashpoints in the evolving mm-hmm. eu uk relationship and it's certainly possible that financial services might provide one such test i guess quite how far the uk diverges and how much of a competitive advantage the uk can secure will determine this
0: okay interesting so again plenty of room for both negotiating but but probably a few rows to blow up for us to uh, to oversee and and consider so just just look at the wider sphere of politics. Clearly we're we're seeing the government under a lot of pressure at the start of the year. What are you seeing as the main challenges? What what's the sort of word on the street in in politicsville, so to speak?
1: Well it's almost quite hard to know where to start, but you know, I want to keep it it punchy. I mean there's no escaping the economic challenges facing the government in the first instance. At the start of this week the Chancellor outlined that GDP had fallen almost nineteen percent in the last Quarter, which is the largest fall in annual output in over 300 years, but it's the political choices thrown up by the estate of the economy that are most interesting. Now, we know the Chancellor is a fiscal hawk at heart, but the wider political environment means this natural inclination towards fiscal consolidation is not very viable. But you know, once public spending can be tapered, perhaps we might see him looking at conventional fiscal levers like income tax, national insurance or corporation tax. Now, coupled with that, the labour market is another huge challenge and there's a recognition certainly in the Treasury that pulling any COVID-19 support too quickly will be unhelpful. So there's careful consideration going on there. I think it would probably be remiss not to touch very briefly on COVID in the sense of the vaccine rollout. And not only is it the surest path out of this lockdown, fingers crossed, but in the same vein, it's almost the most important economic lever too. And the prize of the UK being the best in the world at vaccination it is something that could genuinely turn things round for the government, whose favourability has steadily slipped over the course of its handling of, of this pandemic. And then I guess I would end on, you know, whilst the government successfully put one constitutional challenge behind them last year, namely Brexit, another is set to take its place this year, and that's our own union. All the polls are pointing in the wrong direction for the government on Scottish independence, and it's getting increasingly hard to see how government can hold its line against granting another referendum, particularly if we have a SNP landslide at the next Scottish Parliament elections. And you really do get the sense that this is going to be a dominant and defining question for this administration. Brilliant, Olivia, thank you. So so, Haran, just
0: coming to you with respect to markets, I mean, we heard from Olivia that there's an awful lot still to work on with respect to Brexit now that the transition period is over. But would it be fair to say that investors seem to have put Brexit behind them?
2: My answer will be slightly different from Olivia's, simply because investors adopt a slightly different lens when looking at Brexit. And here, I think it's, uh, I'll start by distinguishing between the two types of effects that Brexit will have in markets, primarily UK assets. Now, the first effect concerns the long-run implications of Brexit on the UK economy. For example, how much the higher barriers to trade will lower long-run growth, how it changes the trade deficit, and the resulting spillover effects upon UK assets. The second effect is uncertainty, or no-deal risk, the risk that in the short term you'll have a chaotic new deal outcome and all of its negative implications on the UK economy and the UK markets. Now, frankly, it's difficult to say how much the first effect has really been priced in because really the, the magnitude of the long-run economic impact of Brexit is highly uncertain. We are reasonably confident that it's more likely than not to be negative, but not so much. But we're not too certain about the, the actual magnitude of of that. So we can't conclusively say that the long run effect of Brexit on on markets has been adequately priced in. But the second effect, which is the uncertainty of No Deal risk, uh, and the one that investors and the media were largely focused on over the past few months, I think that's I think it's fair to say that's fully priced out of the markets already. So in that sense, I think you can, hopefully you can expect to hear a lot less about Brexit from investors uh, from a market perspective now.
0: Okay, so with your markets lens, Brexit may be less of a focus. We've clearly had the US presidential elections. Obviously, we talked last week about some of the tumultuous activity that was happening there. But, you know, next week, President Joe Biden is, is sworn in. Will politics become less of a focus, do you think, as we move through 2021?
2: I hope so. But honestly, uh, I don't know. These things are hard to say. As you know, political events are, in their nature, by their nature, incredibly difficult to forecast. And there's no reason to think that a new political crisis can't suddenly pop out of nowhere. So, for example, early early last year, before the pandemic started to dominate the news flow, you recall that investor attention was dominated by a sudden spike in tensions between the US and Iran, which uh, the the missiles firing, which which led to a jump in oil prices. And that really came out of nowhere. So similarly, it's not too hard to envision a new political crisis suddenly popping up from blue skies. Uh, It could be U.S.-China tensions. It could be Middle East politics. It could be anything. Uh, I I will acknowledge that for now, uh, investors are definitely much more focused on other issues like the vaccine rollouts or U.S. fiscal stimulus. But that definitely shouldn't lead us to delude ourselves into thinking that this focus won't pivot to something completely different over the next few months anything can happen. And therefore, we should be mentally prepared for surprises when they inevitably come about.
0: Okay. And and so far, we've seen a pretty strong start to the year with respect to market performance. So Haran, can you just give us a bit of colour about what, what what have we seen with respect to the areas that have performed strongly?
2: Yeah, indeed. So, so far, markets have really started off the year on a rather optimistic note. Uh, in particular, over the past few weeks, we've been noticing that there's been a slight shift in performance towards parts of the markets that were previously unloved last year. So sectors like small cap, value stocks, UK domestics, materials, financials, and energy. So there are a couple of elements that have come together that led to this. For one, you've got idiosyncratic events like the Brexit deal, which definitely benefited the UK domestic stocks and bank stocks. Besides that, there's also been uh, some improving optimism regarding the vaccine rollouts and the implications on the timeline for the economic recovery. And finally, there's also been some increased optimism on another round of fiscal stimulus in the US following the US Senate elections in Georgia. The prospects of more fiscal stimulus has led investors to be more optimistic on the future growth, inflation, and interest rate expectations, uh, which in turn benefits at small cap value and financial stocks more. I think this all goes to show that the positions of market losers and winners can change and rotate pretty quickly. And they're not very easy to predict. And as investors, we should be wary of solely punting on momentum traits, uh, i.e. past winners alone.
0: And that's something that, you know, I know throughout last year, you and the team, uh, Will and others were were, were warning that, that that's, not a, that's not an easy thing to call. And so great news that we've seen a pretty, pretty solid upward trend in markets since, well, I guess last summer. Do you, do you see any complacency? Do you think there's a danger here that investors are getting a bit used to this and, and might we be at risk?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll start by saying that as a whole, investor sentiment uh, has almost fully recovered back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, I think that's a fair uh, statement. And if you were to survey valuations across the major asset classes, as with a few, uh, few like uh, distressed merger market debts or certain real estate sectors, valuations uh, have almost recovered uh, across the board back to pre-COVID levels. And as you said, I think it it does reflect a bit of complacency in the sense that it does reflect the ongoing consensus outlook among investors that the vaccine rollouts will be more or less smooth and that economies can start to reopen by the summer. And this, in turn, allows the market uh, currently to overlook the spate of weakness from ongoing COVID restrictions. Now, I I won't opine too much on whether this consensus is correct or overly complacent. Unfortunately, I'm not an expert on the logistic intricacies of vaccine distribution. Uh, The consensus can be right. But I think it's fair to acknowledge that at the same time that this leaves the market definitely more vulnerable to bad news or tail risks. So uh, as a result, the risk reward and offer for many risky assets are no longer looking as great as as they were last year. In, in fact, we've already taken profit on most of the tactical risk-on trades that we went into last year, and uh, we're currently largely sitting at the sidelines for for now tactically, in wait for more opportunities. Uh, should they come by? And so,
0: in in sort of layperson speak. That, that's very much staying with your diversified yeah. pool of assets, uh, rather than taking particular strong bets in any one direction at this point, a neutral view and wait for, for opportunities either way. Exactly. Great. So, Olivia Haran, thank you so much for joining us and giving us those insights. I'm pretty sure that we're going to be wanting to hear more from Olivia very soon. Um, Sounds like there's an awful lot in the run up to March. So please do let us have you back if that's all right, Olivia. And Haran, thank you for joining us. And we'll speak to you all again in a week's time. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.